0: Welcome back to part two of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Rob Wixson.
1: Summer came. Things thought out. We said, hmm, this is a very nice place, is it? (laughs) It's pretty muddy. So we moved out of there. Didn't have to really do anything, you know. We just took the stuff we had and didn't have to clean. And then um, I ended up back in the Hardy House. This time in the Hardy House, the guy gave me the front room and never assigned a roommate. So I had the room to myself. And so I got the cleaning stuff out. I cleaned it all, top and bottom, put wax on the floor, the whole bit. And it was a buck a night. And I probably was there 18 months, and I might have paid half the rent I should have paid, because I never had a buck. If you didn't have a buck, you didn't worry about it, right? So I lived there. I had a place to lock my stuff up. That was good, and I still had a great stereo little hot plate stereo. That was good. Pretty wild times, Land of the Midnight Sun. Single guy, 18, 19 years old, still not drinking. No, I just, I think I turned 19, uh, summer of 71. Uh, yeah, 19, summer of 71.
0: So you said you were living in Hardy House, but you were, and you were working in the mailroom, but you didn't have a buck? But
1: well, I, if you're living in the Hardy House, you're eating out. If you're eating out in yellow knife, your whole paycheck goes to food. Cause I couldn't cook. There's no place to cook.
0: And were they taking like you didn't pay rent,
1: but I mean was the rent coming off your paycheck or like Oh no, this this the Hardy House was a buck a night, you you had to volunteer to pay it. Oh, my yeah. So you get a lot of truckers going staying there overnight. You get a lot of um, guys that like me just didn't have a place. Uh, twelve rooms. Two bedrooms on the outside, so 24 guys. One bathroom, one laundry facility. Um, it was home in the sense that you're dry, you're warm, you had privacy. Right? And uh, I survived. It didn't seem to be that much of a hardship from my side. Now I look back at it and I say, Oh, not well, we want my kids going through that. But I understood the value of what I got. And then Stuart Hodgson found out I was living there and goes, what the hell? And I told him the story and he was really pissed off. I should never have been kicked out of my apartment. I should have been given an apartment with privacy and they should have protected me a lot more as a young kid who's a valuable employee of the government of the West Territories. He was outraged when he found out. He had his deputy phone the housing office and say, get Rob works in an apartment. And they phoned me and said, you're now on the list. I said, great. I was all excited. They phoned me. He phoned me two weeks later and says says, have you got an apartment yet? I said, no. Got a call 10 minutes later saying, you're now six on the list. Next day I get a call, did you get an apartment? No. Next 10 minutes later I get a phone call, we have an apartment to show you. They finally got the hint. He wanted it done now. He liked me. Stuart Hodgson and I got along great. He told me two things in life that I hold dear today. Number one, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know who to ask. And number two, never be afraid to make a decision. And that's my life right there. Those two things. I'm not smarter than anybody else. I just know who to ask. You can ask Google now. Yeah, and I've never been fearful of being in charge. So that these, these are huge lessons that I got and probably didn't really realize how valuable they were until I realized how often I was talking about them.
0: There is these these older generation of men who were, even in the schools, like you say, um, and and they were uh, influencing, not manipulating, but sort of guiding. They, they, they would recognize somebody's talent or somebody's skill, right. and they would kind of go, he is not an ap- academic, he's a tradesman, yeah. so what the hell are you trying to Okay. He's obviously not doing well in academia. Right. Let's just put him in the shop, shall we? Yeah. And he
1: will shine, and he'll get a vocation, and he'll have a job for the rest of his life, and we've done our job right there. And Stuart Hodgson recognized that I was a doer, so he would come to me to help him do things. I remember one day I get a phone call from his office. By this time I was moving up in the rank. I was a clerk, too, in the government office, and I had all the keys to the building. And so he, his office phoned me up. Stewart's locked out of his office. Can you bring a key? So I brought the keys up, none of them worked because he never handed out a key to anybody. So uh, I said, no problem. Whipped out my wallet, got out my credit card, and I broke into his office. And he went, that was good. So if whenever he wanted to get in anywhere, he'd come and see me. <laughs> he could have had a career as so. I. It's B and But I was a doer. You were a doer, yeah. I did things, right? And I, I didn't realize that's what I was, but that's what I did. Very unique is not the, the word to use, but um,
0: uh, lots of other words, but that's just sort of one we'll use for now. It's one of my specialties. <laughs> one, a, a unique time where the town was small enough, and lots of other people have said this over the years yeah. to me, to me and to you that way, where it's just like, you're rubbing shoulders with...
1: Mabel Brazen, yeah. The g- gossip colonists of the town, <laughs> right? How can you not get your name in the paper if you're hanging out with Mabel Brazen? Stuart Hodgson, John Parker, all those guys. Commissioners,
0: and it's just like, yeah, it's just like your buddies, like you're just guys. I and mean, Alex Ternicke mentions this as well, going to the commissioner's ball. Yeah. oh. Um, and there's the minister, from, and there's the federal there's, minister. There's David Searle yeah, sitting there. Yeah, the, and, and there's the guy who runs the, the pump truck that comes and pumps out your septic tank this is your living situation in Yellowknife circa 1971 yep. or 1920
1: yep. or drinking age so the player's apartment I was right smack in the middle of the building that was my apartment I was go- used to go out with Josie Clean and um, I got to know Brian a bit that summer and we were just starting to get into music a bit more it was another year later where things got a little bit different it might have been earlier actually that's right. So when I was living in the Hardy House, Wayne Bertrand was living in one of his dad's houses all the time. It's called the Grey House. So that house has a huge story around it. Years of story. For example, the time that the power went out for like 12 hours in Yellowknife, That was only one of the only places that had heat because it was gravity fed heat. Didn't matter if the power was out; we had candles, <laughs> and so we had a hell of a party. <laughs> Every got a day off work, you know. The gray house—I remember being having to have my turn at doing dishes, and I didn't live there. But Wayne made you right. Wayne said, "We're cleaning the house today. You were here yesterday, so you clean today. No problem. I was part of that. My carpet, which is a green carpet, I had to buy out of the high rise." Ended up as the carpenter in the gray house, and I was still, you know, I didn't own a guitar, but I was picking up guitars around the room and trying to play them and figure things out and stuff like that. Never that serious about it, but it's always there. And music was huge there. People were jamming all the time, and and uh, you know, eventually that's where Sandy Wilson made us. Uh, it's not a harem when it's a man doing it, but he had his own his own room that was there's a circuit of. Uh, of uh, females floating through there on a regular basis. All very cute, if I remember correctly. Anyhow, uh, and I forget who lived in the other half because there was another half that had a room going in the back way. Yeah. There is one story about the gray house I'll never tell, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but the gray house has its own mystery, and uh, there's got to be a song there somewhere. i got to figure it out these days. Mm-hmm. But that last that was a few summers that that house was around as the going to place. Wayne moved out he got a girlfriend and eventually it just sort of went, I think uh, Sandy Wilson got it and then other people got it and then it became more derelict. But uh, <laughs> JT was around when the gray house was still around, so that was pretty cool. So that's how the living arrangements evolved. I ended up moving to Polaris quit the government got them to give my job to Wayne and they moved my job from where it was in a nice cushy office out into the bullpen so Wayne got it, given a slightly different job than what I had more of an accounts payable shirt okay. whereas I was a gopher mm-hmm. I did the accounts payable and I did this and I did that and I did all the stuff plus they called me whenever they needed the keys or the Xerox fixed or whatever Right. I just did all that stuff And Wayne's job was more sit at the desk, process his paper. Uh, I guess they saw different talents. So I came down here and went to school for three months. And I realized I really didn't like going to school as much as I thought I might. And I didn't like having no money. So in January, after three months, I went back. And I was back 24 hours. And I walked into the clerk of the council's office. And I said, hi to everyone. I knew them all because I used to be the mail clerk, right? They say, you're looking for work? And I said, yep, can you start tomorrow? So legislative session was coming on. They used somebody, and it got me to work. I got an apartment within a few days. And that's when Brian came up that summer, and Wayne was living down the hall, and we started playing together on a regular basis all the time. Uh, if I wasn't playing with them, I was playing by myself. So that's when the, the trio started and the guy started doing
0: the, the, the folk music and the, and the blues well,
1: music. Well, you know, right I now. was never good enough to be part of the band, right? So they got JT and Gary T's to play with them, and they started getting some gigs. Not a lot, but they got a few. And then JT got promoted to the Wilson Band, right? And Gary T's they needed a better bass player over there, so he went off. And so they had no bass player and they had no drummer. And they both looked at me and said, Why don't you start playing bass? And I had no clue. But I picked up this Manfield Gibson uh, SG bass. And I played it through the Sun Sepulcher, right? And of course, blew the fuse. Because, you know, you're trying to get to overdrive and all kinds of stuff. And then, um, so, then blew the amp and then ended up buying that. And I can't remember his name, but he was in town playing bass. He had a fretless fender and he had uh, Precision Bass, and he had The Ripper. He just bought The Ripper, and he decided he wanted to sell The Ripper, 500 bucks. I'll, I'll buy that, and gave him 500 bucks for it. Don't know where I got 500 bucks, but I'm sure music paid for it eventually. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, bought The Fender. Uh, but that, I got on stage, and this is a true story. The day we were going to play, Brian and I went cross-country skiing. Came over a hill in school draw, and I landed backwards and jammed my thumb. This thumb. And I'd been practicing bass for a couple weeks, so I knew a couple of riffs and basics. I could play uh, Heart of Gold. I could play uh, um, Shape I'm In. Do 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 do. You know, I could do that stuff, really rudimentary. And but my thumb was now fucked. So here I am with my thumb, not able to press against the bass, trying to get it to make noise by just using my fingers. <laughs> Talking about fire under fire on stage, I, I, if I had been the kind of person that is was embarrassed, I would have been totally. But I just didn't care. We played loud, the way we went. And you know what? Eventually, I got to know the notes, and my thumb got healed, and <laughs> away it went. That was my start of Sky Circle. Oh, wow, OK, so Sky Circle. Yeah, so that's the first band. That you played that's like the with first the, band live I played with. I played, you know, different things in different places, but never a part of the band. Just yeah, sort part of like, just and this. The band. This is your only shot. Yeah, so this is like <laughs> 73, 74
0: By that
1: time, yeah, seventy four, getting towards seventy five, even. Okay. because yeah, I'm back in your life now, working with the clerk <coughs> office and being styles involved, being starting to play harmonica a bit.
0: Tell me about Bing because people have talked about Bing and I never did know him and I, I can't even visualize him. I'm okay. sure I might have heard him
1: play. At some. I'm sure I have a picture of Bing around here somewhere, but Bing was an interesting man. Uh, when he was born, he was born in scoliosis. So his back was like a hunchback. And so they decided when he was young, he's a very little guy. To straighten his back. So basically do not... Surgery, straighten his back and they put two rods in his back. And he was basically in a body cast for 18 months. <laughs> when they cut it off, they found knitting needles and all kinds of stuff inside. Because <laughs> he's so itchy. Anyhow, uh, so he is an old man in a little body. He's always a year or two older because he's behind in school. Deep voice, beard, good-looking guy, thin, very thin. Um... Uh, in high school, he might have been part of the drinking crowd, but I don't... He never really noticed it. Like liked his, his Coca-Cola and two twenty twos. That was his thing. He and I worked together in the clerk's office. We worked together in the mailroom. We knew each other through school. Right? He, he came up. His dad was with the uh, Forest Service in BC. So we got to, and Bing was kind of the guy that seemed a bit more mature than everybody else. So he was given responsibility. He would be the supervisor. He was given the clerk three job, right? Bing didn't, never did anything. Bing was very skilled at being the nice guy and, and obviously the mature guy, but he needed people around him to get it done. And I was a good partner for him, perfect. I didn't mind going and doing stuff. So we got along well. And he lived in the high rise, and he used to spy on me, stuff like that. He started to get into harmonica because he really did, He really liked guitar, but he, he was never... A smooth guitar player. He, he, he noodled to himself and it's one song that, I, that I've written out of a noodle he had and I call it Bing Sting. I, I played it for him once and he started crying, um, so I never played it for him again. <laughs> but he, uh, he got good at harps and he got a collection of harps so he could play in any key. And so when we played places like the, uh, we call it the Greenhouse, uh, I remember we just set up equipment and played all day, and Bing was there playing away with his harps, and uh, I can remember doing a song called Blonde tokes because that was what the market was right at the time, so these had these hot knives going all the time. And and we'd put you down on your instrument, and go and have a couple of toques, and then come back and play some more, right? And the music was going nonstop, so the song Blonde Tokes went on for about 25 minutes. <laughs> And people just come in and make up verses, and maybe add a riff here and there. <laughs> and go back and have another hit. Um, so that's the kind of scene we're at. And, and so when you get to weekends and days off, it was always looking for an opportunity to get together and and have fun. And we did that a lot. Uh, it wasn't about the gigs; it was about the music. The Grey House was a place to do that. The, this greenhouse, I remember, happened a few times. And uh, so I was uh, looking for opportunities all the time to play. So this, we're sort of beyond the youth grants here now, right? Oh,
0: yeah. we're Way beyond that. You guys are growing up and, and, uh, and government jobs and all the rest of it.
1: And so. there's lots of bar bands, and we're all hanging out because there's always new bands in the town every week. Okay, so you would have seen that transition yeah. sort of
0: starting, starting to happen. Can, can you see
1: Oh, Well, we started to see Ted Wesley, he got in the hoist that was sort of the first place, was good live music, because it was clean sound. Ted Wesley had lots of songs, and the Hoi Shum loved him. He could sing along, and he was very entertaining. Um, and I always liked his voice and sound. Uh, I think we started to get a lot more Legion dances, and then the Elks Hall picked up on that. And so he started these stain, Stained Glass Illusion and those kinds of bands playing those places. And, of course, those, that opened it up for, you know, friends and then, then us, Sky Circle, and, and you guys after us. And uh, so it really became a good little market. You, you, we walked into the Elks Hall and we basically booked all winter. So we were playing from December right through to the end of April, one, every weekend. One, every weekend, one, two nights a week? Yeah, or? Friday Saturday. Wow. Yeah, two, two, $250, 300 bucks a night. It's probably the same pay scale today. <laughs> Fifty <laughs> bucks a man. If it existed,
0: it would be. But Fifty it bucks exist. a man. So we don't have to worry about that.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so yeah, you're right. The, the legions and the and, and the Elks were were starting to pick up on that idea of the yep. entertainment and all the rest of that stuff. What about Le- the Legion other?
1: was country. We were more rock and roll. Yeah, yeah.
0: What about what about the other clubs though? Like that, I mean, the Chapline, the,
1: well, the Gold Range, the Gallery. The Chapline was renamed. It was called something else then, but right around then it got renamed to Trapline. And, uh, and the stage got a little bit more formal. So it wasn't a great stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you b- jumped up and down on it, your amp would fall over. <laughs> um, it was a gig more for the, the guys that were coming into town. So you get these bands coming from Edmonton on the circuit, right? And they'd come up for a week or sometimes two. Uh, sometimes it'd be really good, sometimes it'd be the Cowess right? You have the Castle Brothers come up and that sort of stuff. So you got you got to see those guys. Oh you? yeah! Wow! Oh yeah! So guys like that and some guys are probably who knows are probably well-known bands now that I just wouldn't recognize from then. Um, the Gallery was a new building, and that opened up, and they started bringing strippers in with bands backing them and then they got to having their house band or whatever band they brought in for the week be the backing band for whatever stripper they brought in I can't remember ever backing a stripper I think we were very close to having to back a stripper and the stripper backed out, something like that but I remember this one lady who was like 6 feet tall big voice and just she probably weighed 250 pounds right she was the entertainment but she did burlesque more than stripping and she was fabulous she had great jokes and I think Wilson and the boys were backing her and they had a great time, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, gallery for us was the pinnacle. If we can get the gallery gig, that meant we were we were there. We had the we had the trapline gig more than once, and we had uh, the legion, and we had the Elks Hall, and we had the high school on a fairly regular basis and get those gigs. But but we never got the gallery until the summer of '76. The last gig Brian played in your life. In that lineup, mm-hmm. we did a week, six days, and that's when we had Hurricane Carter, Battle of Hurricane Carter. And we were we were basically really a tight band. Wayne had that big lassie speaker, he just hit it for Shape I'm In, and he'd he play all that big rhythm he does. And Brian would just have a heyday over top, doing whatever he could with harmonica or whatever instrument he could get us hold. And his brother came with us, and he's a good lead guitar player, so he's just filled in perfectly. He actually looks a lot like you. Except you're taller. Anyhow, uh, uh, and I just, at the Ripper bass, and I was just humming along. Kim Ferry was getting better, but we still wouldn't let him do drum roll. Because he never quite came up with the drum roll part He could do a good backbeat, and it wasn't too bad if you didn't give him too many cymbals. You know, Volley says, How do you rescue a drowning drum drummer, don't you? Give him the cymbals. This just a little one I threw in. Um, so uh, the gallery was a good gig for us. Very good. We really enjoyed it. Brian left, and we said, what are do we doing now? The Mercer's floating around. And then there's this other guy who liked to sing, and he sang really well. So we switched over and started doing songs like Heat Wave, uh, different songs from Steve Miller with the higher voice, right? And that got to be a little bit more orchestrated, so we were hitting harmonies. Uh, Mercer was teaching us the harmonies. This note, this note, right? He he sung it right. And the band, I thought, got pretty nice. We got the trapline gig for New Year's, which is a pretty big gig. And uh, so it's a Saturday night, I think, and and I can remember the dance floor so hopping that all the beer my aunt fell off, all that free beer gone. Monday or Tuesday or the gigs after that were dead quiet in the place. I remember Terry getting mad at me because I was saying, well, yeah, but we've got a set to play. And he just didn't want to play because there's only four people in the place. And I understood that, but I should have been relaxed. But I got a little bit, mm, come on, we contracted to do the job. We should do the job. That's the professional side of me, right? And he got pissed off me. And that was the end of the band, pretty much. And it was that spring that I left town, so I, I didn't mind. It's time for me to move on. Yeah. Who's the singer that you picked up? There's two people we picked up. One guy it's not his sang but he played a, a I think it was a piccolo sax, like a real short thing, no no curl to it. Great sound. He didn't last that long. He left town. The next guy we got I can't he was young. He just had a really nice voice. Um, and he sang the high notes really well, so the harmonies, we could all slide in low right Yeah, it was, it was really nice. So, And Wayne Wayne might remember, he's he's the guy that came on stage with a friggin' beer in his head. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Um, so I'm on bass, and Kim's on drums, and Wayne's on guitar, and Mercer on keyboards, the, the Fender Rhodes, which is just dynamite. The amp he used in that Fender Rose you probably don't know this, and Wayne probably didn't tell you. Wayne used to own it. Talking about that big Fender Twin? Yeah.
0: That was a heavy amp, man. That oh. was huge. And it was
1: loud. Wayne owned that for a while. Well, I moved that amp a lot. <laughs> <laughs> heavy sucker. Well, I have, have a, a, a deluxe. It is heavy enough. The friggin' Roland's terrible. Yeah. I don't like moving it. Yeah, I so. I <laughs> I, I'd rather take the basement because at least it's you know, speakers separate from the rest.
0: Other than the, uh, the councils and stuff like that, the uh, other touring bands coming through that were really memorable?
1: You know, when I think back, uh, it, it all was always entertaining, but I remember doing circuits, right? Going to the hoist room, see who's there, and then i go over to the strap line, see was there, and the range took a long time before they got entertainment. Uh, they didn't have much entertainment before I left. They started getting the year I left. Country bands. And uh, the gallery had entertainment for quite a while. And uh, the Snowshoe Lounge, not, is that was called up at the uh, the new hotel? What's it? The Explore. What do they call that room?
0: The Snowshoe
1: business. Yeah, Snowshoe. Yeah, I actually worked the bar in the cocktail lounge and the restaurant for a year. I was the bartender in there, we're making some extra gig money. <laughs> And um, well, actually, for about six months, that wasn't a year. Uh, I also bartended in the Hoist Room for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Busy guy. Holy shit! <laughs> That's, uh... I'd never think of that now, though. But I've always had two jobs. I've always had something else to do. That's just been me. It's my life. Yeah. i, I just have a, have my own way of doing things, and it seems to work.
0: <laughs> well, you're only doing things. But again, in the other life, I mean, for. For myself and I, for probably hundreds of others, and yourself included, included that way, like you say, you get back to Yellowknife within 24 hours, you got a job, you probably have a gig, Yeah. and it's just a matter of a place to live, and then within like three days, that's all taken care of, and then it's like full steam
1: ahead. And in the, in the 70s is very much like that. If, if you knew anybody in Yellowknife, you, you were set, because yeah. they always looking for somebody. You weren't there when B.B. King came to right? Yes, King. I was. So they want the BB King started Terry Mercer going to promote this. I don't know who else is with Terry, but they're all in on it. Terry comes to me and says, "I need equipment." I said, "Okay, what do you need?" And he says, "I need the basement because the the bass player wants the basement. And I said, "Sure, you can have it. I want a ticket." <laughs> he did not like me for that. He wanted me to cough off the twenty bucks for the ticket. I did eventually because I realized he wasn't making any money. I finally put my twenty bucks in the kit. <laughs> But I figured, you know, you're going to take my amp, put it in the friggin' cold arena. <laughs> and it's a brand new amp. I think I wanted to lose 20 bucks for it. But uh, that was a good gig. I mean, they, they wanted to originally take the ice out, but they didn't have a floor yet. All they had was gravel. So they had to leave the ice in. They put dirt on it. It's, they just put gravel over top so people didn't kill themselves going to the chair. And it was you know it was tin right so you can imagine the sound but at the front it was it was pretty good and they used the sure PA and they had a I forget whose amp it was it, it was a twin reverb but six speakers it's the same basics twin but they had six uh, super sixes or something like that they called it uh, I think the Sun was on stage Wilson's uh, GBX was on stage. Um, I can remember all the gear and the band came with a horn section and it was just awesome BB King was just so smooth and you know the story about the accommodation don't you BB King know- heard that they, you know, they paid money to bring them up in their gear and, and put them up in the hotel and he found out that they weren't making any money and he paid the tab for the hotel And Mercer probably didn't tell people that too much, but I knew that. Yeah, but in the time that you were
0: you were working with him, were you working
1: with him in the mailroom when he was working in the mailroom? I got him the job in the mailroom. I was working upstairs by then, but I, I recommended him. I liked Terry. I liked his attitude. I liked his spice. When when they told him to cut off half his hair, he cut off the front half. That was just one of the funniest stories <laughs> I can tell. And I remember all these stories. Right, my memory is not bad for this stuff.
0: I would like to thank Rob for sharing his rich musical life story with Musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee, and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brady. Thanks for listening.